Meanwhile, in Justice League Quarterly number one, cover dated winter 1990. Hello, and welcome to the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. This is another of our Meanwhile episodes, and what I mean by that is we take a break from the usual numbering to provide a chance to look at the JLI outside of the ongoing monthly series. Now, in this case, we're covering another spinoff series for the JLI, specifically Justice League Quarterly number one. Now, by the way, my name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but guess what, folks? I have brought along a friend. In fact, each episode, I invite a guest to help me cover whatever issue I'm talking about. Now, my co-host today is a returning guest to the show. He's another international guest, and he has from the Scottish Embassy, though he claims to be an Englishman. I don't really get that either. Nowadays, he's a prolific writer of comic book reviews. However, back in the 1990s, he served as an editor for the gorgeous UK reprint series, Superman Magazine, which included several reprints of the JLI series. Folks, please help me welcome back to the show, Mr. Martin Gray. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Martin. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's a beautiful autumn day here in Edinburgh, and I'm just back from a cruise very lucky been around the Greek islands which was gorgeous off to Blackpool next week which is the Atlantic City of the North and just started watching all the Hallmark Christmas films so I'm in a good place <laughs> well that's fantastic I'm so excited to have you back on the show it's been a long time several years since you've been on the show and you asked to be on this episode oh my gosh probably right when I announced the show I think is that fair to say I think it is, yes, because the conglomerate issue is one of my favourites for reasons we'll get to. And I just wanted to get in there before somebody else. Well, I just remember the time saying, Martin, it's going to be a few years till we get to it and not realising it would be, what, six years or so since we get to get here. <laughs> We're still around. Hurrah. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, folks, we've got a lot to talk about because this is a 72-page comic. So we're going to get jumping right in on the other stuff, folks. So first off, we do need to take a second to thank our sponsors. This episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's tied into that issue in some way, shape, or form. Martin, what'd you bring this time? I have brought from InStockTrades, Justice League Corporate Maneuvers, a handsome 304-page trade paperback collecting, not just the first appearance of the incomparable conglomerate, but the return of Mr. Nebula, Mitch Wacky, and the Injustice League League and lots, lots more. That's collecting JLQ issues one through four. As I say, 304 pages of DC goodness, usual US price $24.99, but within stock trades, you get a 42% discount, and this is just $14.49. That's fantastic, because, you know, some of these issues have been harder to find, but it's really nice to see that this one is in print as a trade paperback right now, so check it out, folks. I brought something a little more um, tangentially related. I brought a trade paperback called Avengers Live Cree or Die, trade paperback. This one's 216 pages, and it collects a whole bunch of Avengers comics, specifically 364, 365, 366, from the mid-1990s. And it also includes other stuff that comes along later, but I mentioned those specific 
specifically because this is the brown jacket Avengers era. You remember uh, when they did all those chrome, not chrome, they were foil embossed covers on the Avengers books and stuff like that? This is deep, deep, deep in the brown jacket era of that where they fight the Lunatic Legion and the Negabomb and all that stuff. I absolutely love that era. Is it great? No, probably not. But <laughs> but sometimes the challenge lets you look past that and love it anyway. And this one normally goes for $24.99. Uh, right now you can get it for, for 42% off, and that gives you a price of $14.49. And you're probably scratching your head, why is Shag promoting a 90s Avengers book? Well, again, focus on the brown jacket Avengers part of that statement, and we'll explain it in just a little bit. So for this and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support, because Running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services. And a while back, we realized we need a little help with the expenses. So we launched the Patreon, and you folks stepped up to help to keep the network going. So if you're enjoying the JLI Podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network while you're there. And at certain tiers, you'll get mentioned on your show of choice. Just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the JLI Podcast. Our sincere thanks go out to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker Wright, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Mike Zemkowski, Patrick McMullen, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, Tim Price, and one other person. Who's that? That's Martin Jay, my good self. <laughs> Thank you so much, Martin. We appreciate it. Again, folks, visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. All right, folks, this is big. Justice League quarterly number one. We're finally here. You know, this is the third leg of the Justice League International era right here. So get out on the social media. I want to hear you talking about it. I want to hear your memories of this book. I want to hear your fresh thoughts if you read it now. Uh, use our hashtag fwpodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast or Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast on Facebook. Because it is all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. Share your thoughts. We're dying to hear it. Now, normally, at this part of the show, we have a chat with a guest where we sit down and talk about their history with the JLI. However, Martin is a returning guest, so if you want to go way back and listen to the Meanwhile episode all about the Captain Adam conspiracy that we did, uh, produced back in December 2018. Oh my gosh, Martin, so long ago. Uh, <laughs> I'm so lucky. I never get the single issues. I get 20 issues of Captain Adam, 10 issues of JLA and JLI, and a massive, lovely, lovely 72-page comic that I did ask for. Uh, nothing but the best from my good friend Martin, folks. That's right. <laughs> so if you go back to that episode from December 2018, you can hear Martin's origin with the JLI and his favorite members. So let's get into this thing, folks. A bumper-length book, as we say. So right now, if you want, if you don't have a copy of this handy, because, I don't know, you won't buy the trade paperback, you don't have the issue, you won't buy it digitally, you don't have DC Universe Infinite, I don't know what your problem is, people, why you don't have it. But if you don't have it handy, you can go to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and you can see some of the images from this issue. We'll post that out in our image gallery. Now, as we get into this again, I mentioned it's a new JLI series, the third leg of the JLI era. And this is a quarterly release, hence the name, duh. But so it, they would get the issues every three months. Now, I had to go back and do a little research. I was trying to remember when DC really dove into that quarterly stuff. So there was uh, before JLI quarterly, we had Mistree quarterly, uh, and we had the Question quarterly, uh, possibly. It depends on the timing. We're talking about release in a minute. And then much later was the Green Lantern quarterly. Now, did you get these quarterly books, Martin? I bought this one. I didn't get the Question quarterly. I'm amazed he was popular enough to get an extra book. 
I bought the Mystery Quarterly. I enjoy that a lot. And I got the Green Lantern Core Quarterly. Yeah, sort of similar to me. I, I picked up Green Lantern Core Quarterly. Um, I may have checked out Question Quarterly at one point or another. Uh, Mystery wasn't really my thing. Although, in, in hindsight, I wish I had bought it. It looks like it was probably phenomenal. So I, I, I got very excited by the quarterlies. And, you know, Superman books had their own quarterlies. Man of Tomorrow, I think it was. Or the fifth week, I guess, was what they called it. But those weren't bumper length. These are all extra length. And, you know, this is just one more piece of the JLI empire. Because if you look at other spinoffs, they had Mr. Miracle. They had Dr. Fate. Uh, Just League Europe. Just League Quarterly. There were a bunch of miniseries that came out. It was amazing how much of a juggernaut the Just League International series was at the time. Especially considering just a couple years later, it, everyone turned on it. It became a joke. Everyone made fun of this era. And yet it was a huge seller for DC Comics. Yeah, we were still looking at the time. It's amazing the managed to keep up the quality for so long across so many titles. Uh, it must have been absolutely exhausting for Giffen and DiMatteis. I mean, just must have completely... I mean, DiMatteis left Just League Quarterly after a while. So, I mean, yeah, it must have been completely uh, exhausting. So, let's get into this, folks. Uh, Justice League Quarterly number one from DC Comics. Cover dated, it just simply says Winter 1990, which is a little uh, a little hard to pin down and becomes a bit of an issue here. Because uh, the internet, the grand internet, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, DC Comics, everyone, everyone seems to claim that this issue came out November 6th, 1990. Which is kind of weird. Because there's other evidence that suggests it actually came out in August of 1990. There's stuff in the letters pages. There's a big giant ad- uh, advertisement Martin and I are looking at. It's an advertisement that ran in many comics, and specifically, I can tell you, it ran in Hawkworld number three and El Diablo number twelve, both on this shelf in June. Uh, it's got like a the, a wrapped bundle of the Daily Planet, and it's announcing Justly Quarterly. And it's got an image of the conglomerate team there in their jackets. It talks about the seventy-two pages, all that. It clearly says coming in August. Um, and if you read this book, it clearly comes right after Justice League America number forty-two, which we just covered. So it's also that comes in, that makes sense in August. So I, I don't know whether it was released in August or November. I mean, the internet seems to think it was November. Again, there's a fair amount of evidence pointing to August. I guess it could have been late. I mean, if you look at another way, um, there is a reference to a November date in this comic book. And the conglomerate Who's Who entry appeared in the November Who's Who issue. So maybe it's there. I, do you have it? I don't have any memory specifically. And I'm putting you on the spot here, Martin. Do you have any memory of this being late or coming on time or anything? I don't know because I never really paid attention to when things were supposed to be coming out. I just go to the comic shop every week and whatever was there, if it looked good, I'd buy it. But you mentioned that in the comic, it mentions a November date. But looking at the website Boost Terrific, which is a very good website to force the Booster Gold, mm-hmm. it's mentioned the actual date of the Daily Planet in the comic. There's a week. There's a weekday. I think it's a Friday. I think it says Friday, November the fourth, nineteen ninety. I think it points out that that was a Sunday or something, something else that was different. Hmm. So it looks like the date all over the place. I don't know. My, my my personal hope is it comes out in August, because we're going to talk about a, a reason in a little bit later, but uh, I guess it, it was what it was, and I know we're covering it in the right place in our in our cover, so we'll just go with that. Now, folks, the cover price on this thing was $2.95. And it's funny, because nowadays I say that, and you think, wow, that's pretty cheap. No! A normal issue was only a dollar! So $2.95 was a massive price hike. However, you're getting a 72-page story, whereas normally, you'd be getting a 22-page or 24-page story. So you're getting a heck of a deal at two ninety five. It just you know it sounds uh, like like a huge jump when you double the, or triple the price. Really, now the cover is by Adam Hughes and Carl Story, which again another internet discrepancy right here, which also leads me to wonder about that release date because most internet sites, including DC Comics themselves, say that this cover was inked by Chris Sprouse. Folks, that is absolutely incorrect. It was definitely inked by Carl Story. Uh, we have a, a screenshot of the pencils and inks, say Carl Story, and I have a story that tells 
tells you that it's Carl's story. So um, anyway, if you see something online that says Chris Sprouse inked this cover, that is wrong. Martin, why don't you describe the cover to the folks at home? What we have is the classic Justice League 1 composition. So you have a crowd of heroes looking up towards the camera. Yes, the Justice League is there, but for our purposes, the really interesting talk are the members of a new supergroup debuting this issue, the conglomerate. Now, of all the homages to Kevin Maguire and Terry Austin's JLA, JL1 cover from 1987, Adam Hughes and Carl you have come up with my favourite. Guy Garner's reaction to being displaced by Booster, Ice peeping up from behind Maximan, Gypsy looking adoringly at her big brother John Johns. It's just wonderful. And there's so much volume in everyone's hair. <laughs> and then you have Beetle grabbing the UPC box. Funnily enough, on the trade paperback version that you should buy, as we said, the box is actually used as a bonus Infinity cover, so it's showing the cover of the trade paperback going back again and again into the distance, which is interesting. Oh, that's clever. It's very good. And I don't know whether the listeners know the secret of the cover. I certainly didn't until I got the trade paperback here. But we all think that's Batman behind the logo. But in the back of the trade paperback, there's a production of the original black and white art on DC paper. And it shows it, in fact, whereas we see the logo and we see Batman's torso and we think that's Batman. Actually, without the logo, there is the laughing face of the Joker. Which I absolutely love this. It's hilarious because, I mean, the logo itself is funny because it looks like it's covering Batman, which is all, all by itself funny. And then once you see that the cowl has been pulled back and you see the Joker's smiling face, he's actually saying a line that says, they'll never get a load of me back here, which is a riff on the Batman 89 line where, Bat, uh, where Jack Nicholson says, wait till they get a load of me. So it's hilarious that all these years there was a secret behind the logo featuring the Joker face instead of Batman. Now, where I step in here and I can, again, testify this is a Carl Story cover and the fact uh, about this Joker cover is I've actually known this story for over 30 years. Because uh, in college, I worked at a comic book store called Cosmic Cat. Now, before I worked at Cosmic Cat, my best friend worked there, a guy named Bob, one of the greatest guys in the world. I absolutely adore Bob. We were best friends all through college. Just a real amazing guy. So Bob was working, and one of our customers was Carl Story himself. And Carl was a super nice guy, and he would come in, and he would chat with Bob. And one day, he told Bob about this cover. He told him all about how Adam Hughes laid it out. He told him all about how they, they had the Joker head back there, and that the, the logo was going to cover it and no one would ever know about it and I just thought this was amazing first of all that they that Adam Hughes did this for fun second of all that Carl Story took the time to tell my friend Bob and then once I heard it I just I was over the moon about it I thought this was hilarious and I told as many people as I could no one of course believed me but I'm like no that's Joker back there and like why would they do that because it's funny you know no so for 30 years I knew this was here and I've been looking forward to talking about it on this show since I started this series back in 2016 and as far as I know this is only the second time this original art's been published. It was also published in an issue of Back Issue uh, a while back. So this is the second time this cover has seen the light of day uh, with the Joker's face showing. But I'm just super excited about it because finally I can prove to people, well, I was going to say I can prove I'm not crazy. That's not necessarily true. I can prove I'm not crazy in this one instance uh, about the Joker's face being hidden behind the logo all these years. <laughs> I would have believed you. Aw, see, that's why you're my favorite. You're too sweet. You're always too nice. <laughs> so uh, there's some things to point out. You, you mentioned Ice peeking up over Maxi Man, which is hilarious. I love uh, Fire is giving the very catty, nasty look towards Echo. But let me ask you, what exactly is going on with Wally West there? He's either taking a nap or or he's trying to look down Vapor's shirt. I'm not sure which one. What are you thinking? Well, I think possibly Praxis has sent him to sleep with his telepathic powers, or it could be that he's just been running along and hasn't had enough hamburgers. 
<laughs> you know, I didn't even notice till you said that Praxis didn't even make the cover. Interesting, because um, in a lot of ways he was he was at least in how I viewed it, he was like the standout member of the conglomerate uh, of the new characters. I found interesting. Absolutely, but there's, there's an in-story reason as to why that might be the case. <gasps> oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that either. You're right. He's probably right behind Martian Manhunter. You're probably right. <laughs> yeah. And it could be that Power Girl is actually sort of doing a nerf punch on Wally. It could be that as well. It could be that as well. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, let's get into this uh, plot and probably the breakdowns by Keith Given. Script by J.M. DiMatteis. Penciler is Chris Sprouse. A very young Chris Sprouse, too, by the way. Inker is Bruce Patterson. Letters by Robert Panaha. Colors, Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor, Kevin Dooley. Editor, Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Corporate Maneuvers and Leverage Buyouts. Now, folks, this is going to be a long recap. It is 72 pages, and there is a ton of story in here. So sit back and relax, because here we go. Martin, start us off. Our story begins in the swanky Manhattan Justice League embassy. Elrond, the robotic assistant of Team Chief Maxwell Lord, has a batch of photographs the results of a spying mission. Booster Gold, who recently walked off the League, is pictured meeting various super types and one regular woman. Max recognises Claire Montgomery, a PR guru, and he also spots former Justice League Detroit darling Gypsy. The others include a new hero, Maximan, who recently met Mr. Miracle, Reverb, the brother of another former JLD member, the Tragic Vibe, and a couple of young women whom Elrond can't name. In one picture, Booster seems to be chatting to a floating glass of wine. Over in Washington, D.C., Claire Montgomery is talking to the CEOs of various corporate giants, including LexCorp, Stack Industries, Ferrous Aircraft, and Dupre Chemical. She says they have an image problem. People just don't trust big business. They need to be associated with something people do like, something they believe in, superheroes. So she's put a new team together. Booster Gold, Gypsy, Reverb, Maximan, Vapor, Praxis and Echo, the conglomerate. They look pretty snazzy in their leather jackets covered in big business logos, excited to do good while paying the bills. Elsewhere, at the Dupre Chemicals plant, a young man explodes a drum of God knows what with his mind. He's challenged by Justice League as Fire, Ice, Blue Beetle and Guy Gardner. But rather than apply teamwork, they bicker and the telekinetic gets away. The conglomerate appear and appear unimpressed. It's their first assignment and leader Booster Gold tells the League to get gone. Meanwhile, the Dupre CEO, Whiteman, is confronted by the young man. They know one another. The TK, Phil, says his brother was killed in an accident at Dupre that left him with powers. He starts to strangle the boss by manipulating his necktie. But Praxis appears. He has a more powerful mind and he shuts Phil down. Over the next few weeks, the conglomerate grab all the headlines while the Justice League members seize. Back at Dupre, Whiteman tells Carl Functious, the liaison between the conglomerate and the CEOs, that the recent incident nearly saw his secret uncovered. The unctuous Functious says he'll sort things out. At the Wall Street HQ of the conglomerate, it's fireworks. Beetle confronts Booster, telling him he's sold out to big business. Booster reiterates to his former best friend that the league turned him into a joke. Later, the conglomerate members are forced to attend a dull fundraiser. Feisty Reverb is particularly miffed at having to mix with rich, patronising idiots. He sneaks off to find relief in the men's room and finds Booster, Maximan and Praxis had the same idea. Spotting Claire through a crack in the door, they haul her in and hear that she hates all this too. She promises, one night and then no more corporate crawling. But in the next few weeks, it's still a constant round of magazine covers, public appearances, anything but actually helping people. Claire tells Functious that the heroes have had it with being walking ads for corporations. They'll quit if they don't get an actual assignment soon. Funnily enough, Functious has 
one to help the rebels on the island nation of San Sebo oust Tinpok dictator El Fajita. The business chiefs have heard unofficially that if they kick out this tube of Hitler, they'll pick up lucrative US government contracts to help rebuild the country. So basically, an invasion. Claire is appalled, but Funchess says if they don't do it, the big boys will just find another way. So in they go. Brewster seems stoic. Maximan is excited to be emulating his childhood hero, General Glory. Reverb is deeply uncomfortable. Praxis is pleased to at least be doing something. Vapor and Echo don't make their feelings known. They just get on with the job. Smart Gypsy realises that the quickest way to end things is to bring an Alpha Heater, or as she calls him, El Diphead. She finds him in his tidy hole, torturing the rebel leader. Cue a well-placed candlestick to Alpha Heater's head. Game over. The conglomerate become a bigger media sensation than ever, even as they are tasked with remaining in San Sebo to aid the transition to democracy. At the UN, the delegate from Mexico points out that while the conglomerate may have done good today, how would his fellow members feel tomorrow when the big business lackeys invade their countries? They agree it's time to employ their own team, the GLI. And so it is that a very serious John Johns leads a squad of members into San Sebo to remove the conglomerates and turn them over to UN troops. The Martian Manhunt says Blue Beetle will stay on the GLI jet because of his personal vendetta against Booster. The GLI show and Flash tells Booster and Claire that the conglomerate is under arrest. Booster reckons this is all Max is doing. He's trying to steal their thunder. In a heated debate, John says the conglomerates have created an international incident. Claire fairly points out that the League have done this plenty of times. John says not to make things difficult. Claire replies, shove it, they're leaving. The League says, you're not going anywhere. And I'll take it from here. Uh, the next couple of pages are told through television news bulletins. And the conglomerate manages to evade a fight with the Justice League, and they reach the United States soil, thus avoiding arrest. Later, Trunks tries to send the conglomerate into other foreign countries to protect his corporate client's interest, but the team refuses. In fact, the conglomerate refused the next several corporate-motivated assignments. Things are looking bad for Trunctious with his corporate overlords as they tell him to fix the conglomerate problem or he's fired. We catch up with the conglomerate as the team attempts to clean up a major oil spill. Exxon Valdez ring any bells in this era, folks? Well, it turns out that the spill was caused by one of the conglomerate's corporate sponsors, Ovel Oil. A reporter presses Booster Gold for a quote and he speaks out against the people who sign his paychecks. Companies begin to drop their conglomerate sponsorships, making Trunctious desperate. Now, Clara Montgomery sees the direction things are heading, and she knows the conglomerate will be shut down pretty soon by their corporate sponsors. Claire has confidence in her team, and she believes that they can continue to operate as a force for good, but she also knows they need funding. So Claire decides that the only option is to ask the Justice League International to accept the conglomerate as a branch of the JLI. Claire says it's time to declare a truce with Maxwell Lord, who we also happen to find out is Claire's dun-dun-dun ex-husband? What? <gasps> Meanwhile, Trunctious has gotten desperate. Trunctious devises a trap to destroy the conglomerate, but still salvages position with his corporate overlords. He's planning to release a cloud of toxic gas, which will kill the conglomerate. Then Trunctious will send in a new super-powered pawn that we'll just call Ernie, which will give the appearance that Ernie has saved the day. Now, to control the mindless Ernie, Trunctious has brought in the a mentally powered villain, Hector Hammond. Now, more on that in just a moment. First, Max and Claire have a very heartfelt talk, and Max agrees to help support the conglomerate. Now, at the same time, the JLI and the conglomerate try to mingle and connect, but there's a lot of awkward moments and still some hurt feelings. 
Trunks just puts his evil plan into action, and the conglomerate and the JLI together respond to an urgent call from Trunks. The heroes can sense something's wrong, and Trunks springs his trap. Rather than killing the conglomerate, the JLI swiftly handles the cloud of toxic gas. Trunks still turns loose his new superpowered pawn, Ernie, to destroy both teams. Hector Hammond has difficult controlling Ernie, while the mindless Ernie keeps shouting for someone named Phil? Well, remember Phil from Martin's part of the synopsis like 20 minutes ago? Turns out that Phil and Ernie are brothers who share a mental connection. So Phil shows up having escaped prison, and the brothers move together. And in a giant panel of fawash, the two brothers belly bump, explode with energy, and they are disintegrated. They also happen to disintegrate the nearby Carl Trunctious. Good riddance to bad rubbish. Now, with the threat destroyed, the JLI and the conglomerate are heralded as saving the world. Claire uses her knowledge of Trunks' plan as leverage and blackmails the corporate overlords into maintaining the conglomerate without any corporate interference. The JLI and the conglomerate agree to coexist, and Booster finds himself reflecting on his own motivations. Claire reminds Booster that he is a good person, and they go and enjoy a party to celebrate their success. Then it says in the next issue box, Be here in three months for a cosmic confrontation Justice League style as Mr. Nebula comes to Earth. Woof, man, that thing was long. Going into this, Martin warned me, he said his synopsis was going to be long, because he's like, there's a lot that happens in here. Now, I had read the issue, but until I sat down to write my half of the synopsis, I didn't really appreciate, yeah, you're right, Martin, there was a ton in this comic. So, what did you think, buddy? Oh, wow, just, well, I was going to say just wow, but in fact, I would say it's it's a fantastic story. Shaggy's got intricate plot in various, varied characters, new and old, fantastic challenges, both the villainous and ideological kind, whereas other JLQ issues had a variety of creators involved. This one had both Gifton and Dematisse on story duty, so you had enough plot for 72 pages, enough incident for probably six comics, mm-hmm. and plenty perfectly placed gags. Yeah, this could have absolutely been a miniseries. And like, I'm not even talking like nowadays where they break things up, you know, and drag it out forever. I'm just, even back then, there is a ton of story packed into 72 pages. You're right. So what do you think of the team members? Well, first impressions, well, I don't need a first impression of Booster because I'm another guy, but I love the idea of Money Mad often daft Booster Gold being a role model leading a team into battle. This could be his moment, and I thought he was great through the issue. Then we have Praxis. This was the first time I came across him. I thought it was a terrible name. I looked up the name, but it's still far too obscure for a superhero because it doesn't describe whatever his powers are. <laughs> and then, I can never remember his name. I always have to look it up again and think of him as hubris. I like Praxis. I think that his name is just fine. I think you're being an old fuddy-duddy. <laughs> How did you come across the word praxis previously? No, I had not come across the word praxis, but I think it's a great sounding word. You know, it just, it sounds so, you know, mysterious. You don't get a lot of good words with the letter X that work well and roll off the tongue, and praxis just rolls off the tongue. I'm trying to remember, when did Star Trek 6, I guess Star Trek 6 came out later, so the word praxis was in that movie. But, uh, I, 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 yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the, the Klingon moon or something. I'm showing my Trek side. But I like the name and I love the character. I love his look with the pulled back ponytail and the sunglasses. In fact, I stole that look for a role-playing game years later I developed a character and I specifically told the GM I was stealing the look of Praxis <laughs> oh we need you to dress up for the gallery <laughs> I think possibly because of my day job involves a lot of copy editing I look at Praxis and I see PR Axis I think public relations for the Nazis oh my gosh wow okay I'm never going to be able to see that word the same again thanks for that deep apologies Lord Strag <laughs> <laughs> anyway then we have Gypsy and it's just wonderful to see her front and centre on a super team after the tragic end of Justice League Detroit. I was absolutely convinced this would be a stepping stone 
remember her joining the Kevin team, but it didn't happen. And it's great to see her in an outfit that has the silhouette of her original costume without the flounciness and, you know, possibly the difficult connotations. Mm, right, right. Gotcha. She just kept the name, though, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind. I, I have Irish tinkers in my background, so I'm, I'm having it. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Echo, who has a, a useful power set and a surprisingly andro- androgynous look. Then there is Vapor. Again, lovely US spelling. You need some news in your country, Vapor. We have Vapor. <laughs> She's a little like the Legion of Superheroes character Gas Girl, but more limited and scary looking. And I think she's got an interestingly roost pantsuit. I mean, that must nip when she's in action. It's, it is a very strange material. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I had to look up your the words you used. Uh, how do you say R-U-C-H-E-D? Yeah, roost. I, I had to look it up. I wasn't familiar with that word. But yeah, it, it does describe sort of the bunched fabric she has there. It's, it's very unusual. Yeah, like one of those paper light shades you get at Ikea. Yeah, it does kind of look like that. You're right. Then, then of course, we have Maximan, who debuted in Mr. Miracle, which I wasn't reading by that time because he's not a favourite character, even though I love him and Barter. And we're told that he's the team Superman, but he looks like the man of cheese. I think that's a little bit on purpose. He's definitely the uh, white bread, good old boy, sort of a stand-in almost for the way they displayed Captain Marvel early on in the Justice League series. Ah, of course. And then we have Reverb, which is a wonderful name. And he's a nice surprise, the late Vibes brother, Armando, from JLA 233. And he has similar powers, which go and explain, but family, it's family. I'm intrigued. But what's interesting is that we're told that he's Vibes' younger brother, when if you go back to JLA 233, it was the other way around. He was the elder brother. Mm, that's right. He was in trouble with gangs, if I remember right, wasn't he? He was. He was, as you perhaps call it, a gangbanger. Yeah. That's a rude word in the UK. Uh, but it's it's also rude here, don't worry. But uh, it has multiple meanings. So... <laughs> So for me, so looking at this, the, all these characters, uh, Booster Gold, Praxis, Gypsy, Maximan, and, and sort of Reverb, had all appeared previously. So this was the debut, though, for Echo and Vapor. So looking at it that way, I, I really do wish they had given more character development to Echo and Vapor in the issue. And I'll even throw in Reverb and Gypsy, to be honest. You know, Each one of them got a line or two. You know, Maybe Gypsy got a little more than the others, but uh, Vapor, Echo, and Reverb, they really didn't get much to do in this at all. Praxis and Maximan got some decent development. And of course, Booster got lots of uh, development, arguably the star of the issue. But I just, I do feel like Echo and Vapor and Reverb were sort of left behind. And now if if there was going to be an issue two, that would have been perfectly fine. They could have got that development, you know, afterwards. But just given that there was, they didn't have that opportunity, it made me a little bit sad. I totally agree. I mean, Reverb got a little bit more. You had a bit of insight into his feelings along the way. And Vapor, she was intriguingly bitchy a few times. So she probably would have been an interesting addition to the main team of GLI. Mm -hmm. Echo, she just wasn't there. Given how she later appeared when we appeared in JLQ, quite strangely, she obviously had other depths to her, but it would have been nice to see more in this issue, as you say. Yeah, I mean, the, the only trait they really defined is she's young. I mean, that's really about all they really defined of her here, which is a shame because an interesting set of powers, too. Although, uh, when I read this originally, you know, a million years ago, I did have trouble distinguishing between Reverb's powers and Echo's powers. I mean, besides the fact that the names sound a little similar, uh, I did get a little confused by that. Now, now reading it, paying more attention for a podcast, all made perfect sense. Now, a thought just occurred to me. As I look at, you know, Echo and Reverb and Vapor here, these the costumes, and maybe this makes sense, their costumes look sort of reminiscent of this era of the Legion to me. Sort of combination of the five-year-later Legion or maybe the, um, the post-SW6 well, batch Legion 
Legion. And Chris Sprouse was involved in all that, so I guess that sort of makes sense. Are you getting a Legion vibe as well, or is it just me? I am. Well, Chris, Chris Sprouse was involved in that a lot later. But if you go back to, I think it was 1986, before five years later, Keith Giffen was given the Legion some jackets there. They weren't all identical. And obviously, they didn't have the motorsports logos on the back. But I think Keith Giffen did like the jackets, but who was the first team to have jackets? <laughs> well, for clarification, I was talking about the bodysuits, but yeah, I'm, I'm all about talking about the jackets. So let's do this. So as far as I can tell, uh, and I, I reached out to you folks on the massive World Wide Web uh, asking, is the conglomerate the very first superhero team of the 90s to wear matching jackets? And I think they might be. Uh, and now, a lot, I'm sure everyone's screaming right now at their iPhones, no, the Avengers brown jacket. Blah, blah. No, folks, the Avengers came two years after this with their jackets. And uh, if, in fact, the conglomerate was the first team with the jackets, then I say that all the teams of the 90s owe the conglomerate a debt of gratitude. And debt of gratitude, of course, would be in air quotes there. <laughs> Legion of Superheroes is certainly a contender. You mentioned uh, they had uh, the series before the Five Year Later era had series, but they were different jackets. Then, of course, the Five Year Later era did have matching jackets. And this is where the timing, and the, remember I talked earlier on about the release date of this issue? This is where it gets a little blurry. Because if Justice League Quarterly Number 1 did come out in August then it did beat the five-year-later Legion to the Jackets, because the, the Jackets debuted in issue 13. If Justice League Quarterly came out in November, then Legion did beat the conglomerate to the Jackets. Regardless, though, Keith Giffen would be the driving factor on both sides. So Keith Giffen's to blame for the Jackets in the 1990s, no matter what. And even if the Legion did come first, the ad for the conglomerate had been running in books for months, and it had the matching Jackets on there. So I'm still giving the nod to the conglomerate, whether it's in the ad or the story itself. Now, again, when I reached out on the World Wide Web and asked for help, uh, other people did come up with some suggestions. A lot of people, again, talked about Avengers. That came later. A lot of people talked about X-Men. That came later. <laughs> Our buddy Kichi Baker suggested the Misfits of Science, which is great because they're from 1985. They absolutely were wearing matching basketball hoodies. They're, they are superheroes, but not in comic books. So I love the Misfits of Science. I have a special place in my heart, but I, I'm not going to count them because they're not a comic book. Were they a sports team? No, it was, it was a superhero team. But uh, the, the guy who was the leader, uh, Dean Martin's son, actually was who the actor was, they had these leftover basketball jerseys laying around in their laboratory. And so he made everybody wear these jackets that said Misfits of Science. And that's how the team got their superhero name. It was a really cheesy series, but I cannot tell you how much I love it. In fact, David Gallagher and I did an old episode of FW Presents on this network all about the Misfits of Science. It's a, it's a beloved cheesy series and uh, Courtney Cox's first television series, actually. Oh, wow. Yep. Uh, so Adam. Ackerman, as well as several others, mentioned the Blackhawks all have matching jackets, and they predate the conglomerate. Absolutely. But I don't consider the Blackhawks superheroes, so I don't think we can count that. Uh, and then uh, we got a whole contingent of people. Jay Jones, uh, Peter Watson, Paul Hicks, and Hartley Holmberg all chimed in about Cliff Steele in the Doom Patrol wearing a jacket, which predates the conglomerate. Animal Man wearing a jacket, which predates the conglomerate. But in that case, uh, those were individual people wearing jackets, not a team. The Doom Patrol did all wear jackets at one point, but they weren't matching. They were all different jackets. So you could say that I think Grant Morrison is probably responsible for superheroes wearing the jackets in the 90s. And I would say Keith Giffen is responsible for entire teams wearing
wearing matching jackets. So I think I think that's fair to say. That sounds absolutely fair. Let's let's give them the credit. There we go. Excellent. Okay. So, well, various points in the issue interested me. I mean, I just loved the scene with Ted confronting Michael in the conglomerate headquarters. There was real emotion there, and Ted has such a fair point about big corporations being likely to turn on the conglomerate if they don't do every little thing that they want them to. It's interesting you call him Michael uh, because you notice Michael's name, which is Booster Gold, folks. That name is nowhere in the issue whatsoever, and that's something that the Justice League always focused on with the J- JLA characters. It was always code names, never real names other than John Jones. But yes, uh, th- that tension between Beetle and Booster, it felt real. I mean, you could really feel the stress on that relationship, and it to me, it was a very believable friendship. I really believe that was happening, and, and the, the, those friends were having struggles. I, I, it's not often that a bromance can really get to you in comics, but this one does. It really, really does. It's great to see some attention there. Other things I like, that scene we talked about in which uh, Gypsy takes down the dictator all by herself. That was wonderful because just, you know, it showed her experience, it showed her thought processes that she had, you know, she'd seen enough tragedy to last a lifetime. She didn't want to see all the people hurt during this, this coup that was going on. And it made it so obvious that she was heading back to the big league after this issue. Yeah, that didn't quite play out, did it? Sadly not. Oh, well. Well, at, at the very least, this issue, at least to me, I, I felt it was very important because it finally acknowledged after what the series had been going for several years at this point, uh, it finally acknowledged and showed respect to the Justice League Detroit era. Now, the, you have to roll in the Despero story into this as well, but I, mean, I feel like the, the Despero story and this story, I did both Despero and Despero just for you, Frank, by the way. Anyway, I, I feel like the, the Despero story and Justice League Quarterly roll in neatly together really as one piece, so I'm counting them together. But I remember at the time, I was so excited about this. I was, in fact, calling this the redemption of Justice League Detroit because here we had Reverb and we had Gypsy together. I was so excited about it. Absolutely. It was, it was wonderful. Who would have thought that, you know, 20 odd years later or whatever, we would have a Justice League Detroit massive collection, collecting all the adventures and the people would talk about them regularly with great affection. And most of the characters would appear on television on a regular basis as well. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Now, given the secret knowledge that you showed in relation to Joker slash Batman, you might be able to answer this one. In the issue, we have a full page of the Daily Planet with conglomerate headlines and a credits photograph to one Gary M. Corbin. Now, either Chris Sprouse or Bob Pinaha, the lecturer, wrote that there. I Googled it to find out who Gary M. Corbin was, and I have nothing. Do you know? I do not. I do not. I don't have anything. The only thing I picked up from that page was there's a, there's an ongoing thing across all the headlines about how the, the co- there's a comic book letterer who's in a lot of trouble. He's, he's been jailed for obscene displays and things like that, which is obviously a little play uh, that the, the letterer got to do in the issue. But I, no, I have no idea who the Gary is at all. Uh, well, maybe one of the listeners will know. Probably not. It's probably an anagram that's obscene. <laughs> you mentioned in your part of the recap how there's two whole pages of TV screens, you know, recapping what was going on in San Sebo. Now, I found that very confusing because it wasn't obvious as to whether you read across or down. Did you have any problems? See, this is where I got to question your, uh, your, your pedigree as a comic book reader, Martin. So did you not read Dark Knight Returns? I mean, this is, this is totally uh, Keith Giffen stealing the Dark Knight Returns style of telling a story with, you know, rounded corner television screens. And uh, yeah, I, I, it all made perfect sense to me. I didn't 
struggle with at all. Well, I didn't struggle with the fact that he was telling them with the rounded corners, but just, you know, it's like it, it didn't show you whether you, whether you went from across the top of the first page to the top of the second page. Oh, actually, okay, folks, I got to back up. I, as much as it pains me, I owe Martin an apology. So, all right. So, Martin, I've been reading this comic book mainly on my tablet. Um, yeah. I bought it on Comixology years ago. So, I've been reading that version of it. So, that shows everything as a single page. Now, I've opened the physical comic in front of me and I see what you're talking about. Pages 35, uh, 37 and 38, when you open together and with the yellow backgrounds, I could totally see why someone would be confused on whether you read all the way across the two pages or read as a single page. Okay, so you make a very good point there. It's about time you made a good point, but sure, go ahead. Oh, you're horror back. <laughs> I did read Dark Knight Returns and the storytelling device of the TV screens, I hated it. I hated it even, even then. It just bores me rigid. <laughs> I just know the people feel. But uh, still on the art, I think Chris Browse draws an amazing John Johns facially. But did you notice that pretty much almost all the time when he's using him, he has John Johns standing with his cape tight around him at one point totally closed, or he draws him from behind, saving time. Hmm. I did not notice that. I'm trying to find some examples of that right now. But yeah, you're right. every time I look at John Jones, he's got his cape tightly pulled around him. I kind of like that, though, because... To me, John Jones, especially in this era, was always sort of a man of mystery. He was always sort of uh, enigmatic, a thinking person. So seeing the bare chest with all the muscles doesn't really make a lot of sense with me. So I kind of like the idea of the cape drawn around him. It, it, you mentioned Chris Sprouse. We got to mention that this is like, I think his fourth published art credit. I mean, unbelievable that this guy was so new to the industry and came out, drew a 72 page comic and it's gorgeous. It's beautiful that everyone's face is distinct. They look fantastic. I mean, there's definitely Chris Sprouse nods. Like every time you see a nose, you're like, okay, that's a Chris Sprouse nose. But in general, the book looks gorgeous. Absolutely. It's an incredible shock. I mean, even if Keith Given did do the breakdowns, it's just such an assured performance by Chris Sprouse and it's just gorgeous it stands I mean you, you look at this now and you look at Chris Sprouse today and you think he was so Chris Sprouse at such an early point yeah you're right he came out of the gate swinging he knew exactly he, it's almost like he knew where he was going with this absolutely and I, and I just love little things like the way he draws I was going to say gas girl the way he draws vapour he always just draws a, a little a few lines for her face and puts an indication on the art to get the, the colourist to do a colour hold or whatever so you have you know just like a little yellow patches of art blobby patches with a face they're extremely effective yeah and and they do her differently than say jack power over in power pack which have been around for a while at this point and where he had the power to turn into a cloud as well and it doesn't look the same they used a different technique which is pretty impressive it really really is I'll move on a little bit further. The discussion between Claire and the team after the return from San Sebo is just terrific. It really does show their intelligence and their basic morality. You know, they're not just out there for the money. I mean, Reverb, I think, is especially impressive, and he's obviously going to be drafted onto the GLI with Gypsy and Booster. It's going to be great. This is where we get the gist of the Detroit Rebirth. <laughs> you keep banging that drum, man. Uh, and you're right. The, the moral discussion that takes place in here, I didn't expect that in my reread. Like, I... I remembered the issue was fine, uh, and I remembered I liked the conglomerate, but I guess I didn't remember why until I reread this, and I'm like, wow. I mean, yeah, there are some very big moral discussions that take place in this issue, and they do it really, really well. The heroes, you, you can see them torn on both sides. They just they want to keep their job. They want to make money, but at the same time, they want to do the right thing. So I thought it was really interesting, and uh, I, again, I found the conglomerate a lot more interesting than I remembered. Definitely, definitely. Now, you mentioned that we get back to Hector Hammond. I just adore Hector Hammond. He was one of the first villains 
Ireland, however, read in Green Lantern. And here he is, just superb with, you know, proper guilt cane eyebrows and everything. To me, he's JL's number one villain, never mind Sinestro. And even he hates Carl Functious. And when Guy Gardner comes across him, the cockiness is lovely. Oh, Hector! <laughs> Uh, see, I'm in a little bit of a different position. I, uh, I'm i not a, the world's biggest Hal Jordan fan, so I don't have a, a special love for Hector Hammond except for the fight he had with Martin Stein in Justice League years ago. So I did feel like that was a little strange in this issue because Hector Hammond, to me, should be kind of a big deal villain. He should be sort of the mastermind behind everything. And here he's in just a couple of pages and he's really a pawn of this trunctious guy who doesn't seem like he should be able to have any influence over Hector Hammond. So to me, that felt a little out of field. It doesn't disrupt the story heavily, but when you really sit down and think about the the A level that Hector Heyman should be at, it just didn't quite work for me. That's a shame. <laughs> now, I wonder how early the psychic giant, when you see him standing there on one of the pages in his white underpants going, and down his leg, down his leg, there's this big brown scar. And I just wish, with a Gene D'Angelo, I just wish the color of the scars dribbling from his pants, any color but brown. It's it's gross. It's pretty gross. It reminds me a little bit of Juan Jinnah uh, in the earlier Justice League issues when he was also horribly scarred uh, in the Bialya story, and he just looks disgusting and gloopy and stuff like that. Kind of reminds me a little bit of that. But yeah, I see what you're saying about the brown. Yeah, that's a a little bit of potty humor there. A little gross. Really was <laughs> one 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 of my favorite moments. Uh, I wish we I wish it had gone on for a couple of pages. Was that first big panel where you have the first official proper meeting between the JLI. And the conglomerate, when they're not fighting, they're just, you know, in the room and they're just chatting, you know, exchanging pleasantries and unpleasantries. And it just reminded me of, you know, a JLA, JSA party scene. Oh, absolutely. Anytime you can get heroes standing around socializing from different teams, it's always a joy. And there's some fun bits in here. I mean, guys hitting on Echo, which then uh, ticks off Ice, which I like that. Ice is acknowledging that Guy is a jerk, but usually when he's hitting on a woman, he's hitting on her, not someone else. So I like that bit. There's a funny bit between Reverb and Flash where you get this character who really essentially is appearing for the first time here. He gets a good verbal jab in on Flash to the point where Flash wants to go call his therapist. I mean, there's some fun bits in here. I really like it. And Beetle and Booster try and patch up the relationship, or at least Beetle uh, Booster tries, and it doesn't work. I, I, it works very nicely. It's just wonderful. Um, my final note, might have a song in your head, but my final note is entitled, Is It Love? And we have that last page talk you mentioned between Claire and Booster, and it works pretty darn well. And I think we mentioned that Booster has a bit more depth in this issue than he's had for ages, which was fine to see. But what I was wondering was, and do you think that comment from Claire about Booster sounding jealous about her having been with Max previously was hinting at them possibly having a thing, or was it just a bit of banter? I, I wondered the same thing. Uh, I read that, and it was like that line almost felt like it came out of nowhere. Because, yeah, Booster is clearly jealous of Claire and Max's past relationship, and I didn't get any sense there was any romantic connections there. But, I mean, Booster is a player, uh, and Claire's obviously a beautiful woman, so maybe there is some attraction there. I don't think it ever gets explored, but uh, it definitely feels like it. Or maybe it's just playful office banter. Maybe she's his quote-unquote work wife. I'm not sure. It could be. Now, the real shocker here is at the end, is that Booster is still with the conglomerate. Because, you know, the way superhero comics work, they usually tie everything up with a neat bow. So you would go into this, and I probably did at the time, expecting Booster to be back on the Justice League by the end, and the conglomerate being off doing its own thing. But no. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of growth of Booster Gold. We, he's 
he's gone from being a goofball to being a responsible hero in the issue. I mean, he's still funny, but he stays with the conglomerate, which was a complete shock. It really, really was. And obviously it didn't, it didn't last a while, but it was interesting that they did take it beyond this issue. Yeah. Now, I did want to talk about Claire Montgomery a little bit because what a great character. Like, she really resonated in this issue for me. Uh, she's not a superhero. She's just the business head. I mean, she's essentially a female Maxwell Lord. They don't even try and hide that. I mean, it's basically what she's designed to be, but it works. And we find out that she's Max's ex-wife. And they, Max and, and Claire have two pages of dialogue, just two pages. But I don't know, maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting, I don't know. But I could really believe that there were years of history together and that the pain of the divorce still stings each of them. I really felt it. And I felt a sadness between them. And I, I don't know, it's like I immediately accepted they'd been married for years and like, or, or had, you know, had known each other for years. I, at no point did I feel like she was just some new character being shoehorned in here. Am I on my own here or did you get that sense too? Not at all. It, it all was very natural between them. I wish that, you know, that Conglomerate had become a branch of jail and she'd appear regularly. And what's actually a bit weird is that later on in, in jail courtly, there's one one of the backup stories, one of the short stories, has the right of bringing in an ex-wife for Max, who's a different ex-wife. And, you know, probably Ezra and Health had to shoehorn in the line saying, oh, his other ex-wife before Claire Montgomery. No, after Claire Montgomery. But as far as ex-wives go, I think Claire's the only one he needs. And bring her back, DC. Oh, she's fantastic. Well, now Max is a villain, so it's a little harder to do that. But although maybe we never read those issues and we don't know that Max is a villain, that's also possible. <laughs> None of that ever happened. Beetle was fine. Beetle was never shot. All is well. Max is a good guy. Beetle was shot? What are you talking about? I don't know. Anyway, so uh, some of the fun here is the whole corporate sponsorship idea. You know, I, I did try and think about there, there are corporate superhero teams. There had been corporate superhero teams before. So it's not like the conglomerate was the very first one. Uh, in fact, over in Firestorm, they just recently had done the Captains of Industry as another corporate team. But in this case, they had uh, major corporate sponsors that we've all heard of as readers. They're corporate sponsors that include companies we'd have heard of, like LexCorp, Star Labs, Ferris Aircraft, Stags Industries. Now, there was one that I kind of was scratching my head on. It's Ovel or Ovel Oil, O-V-E-L. And I racked my brain on that. I'm like, is that supposed to be a play on Exxon? Is that supposed to be something oval, like a, an oval? I could all I could come up with is an anagram for love, like maybe love oil. I don't know. Is there is there something out there that I'm missing? I'm not sure, but I mean, some of the the ones to me, maybe they were familiar. Maybe there were versions of US ones that I didn't know, like the the big bad company, whatever whatever it was called, Dupre. Maybe that was, I, I didn't even know for about twenty years that Exxon existed. I thought Roxxon Oil was just brought in out of the blue. So I don't. I don't know enough about U.S. corporations, really. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, the, the corporate logo for the conglomerate is a it's, it's a red letter C. And it's drawn as like this boxy style, like squared off. It's inside an orange circle. Sometimes it's yellow, but primarily it's orange. And it has a black line around it. And folks, I'm going to put it on the gallery because I need your help. I am going crazy. This looks like a real world logo that I see people wearing on t-shirts and hats. And I cannot place it. Uh, I'm not talking about champion and all that or championship or whatever's that line of clothing there is some particular it might even be nerd related I'm not sure anyway I've done all the googling I can I can't come up with anything I'll put it out on the internet uh, or on the image gallery see if you guys can come up with anything but it is driving me nuts the conglomerate logo looks like a real world logo to me I think Shag if you look closely it's actually secret conglomerate member Plastic Man <laughs> it could be Max Romero would be very pleased to hear that he'd be very pleased to hear that <laughs> 
So do you think the conglomerate, as created by Giffen and DiMatteis, do you think like this was a carefully crafted team and they had some sort of expectation this was going to be the next breakout, you know, third leg of, of the Justice League? Uh, or, or do you think these were just kind of minor reappearing characters and, and one-offs? What do you think? My very uneducated guess would be that they were created specifically to kick off the new giant GLI comic. And that if they were greeted with massive acclaim, they would be back. I mean, given that they weren't used much after that, in fact, the full original lineup were never really spotlighted again. There was a tiny, tiny appearance in one of the JLE and JL, JL issues. But I would think that the response was pretty good, but not overwhelming. I haven't went back and looked at the letter columns later, but I think they were just meant to be there for this issue. And if they worked, they worked. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. And, and folks like Echo and Vapor and even Reverb did feel a little generic in this. So it's not like they were taking a lot of time to fleshing them out. So yeah, because they, they could have kept doing special interest with these characters. They could have done backup stories like they did with Praxis or something like that. So yeah, I don't know that they were terribly invested in it, which is sort of sad. But at the same time, we, we got a fun story. Again, this, this is a really, really good comic, folks. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, all right, so another corporate thing. We get this sleazy corporate liaison, Carl Trunctious. Uh, that name, uh, it, it was irritating the heck out of me the whole time I was reading the comic because it's a weird name and I felt like it meant something. Now, you did some research here. Why don't, why don't you tell me what your, your pieces on this was? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't say research. Again, just a, a plucked out of the air guess, but I would think it's a contraction of the phrase thoroughly unctuous. Obviously, unctuous meaning smug, sleazy, ingratiating, false, which is what he is. And after you put that out there, you're absolutely dead on. It has to be that. Uh, whether it's a contraction or just a usage of unctuous, whichever. Uh, it's a word I'd never heard, to be honest. Again, I'm not too bright. So I, I, I'm, a, I'm American educated, so we don't, we're not too smart. But yeah, looking up that word and the usage of it, it's absolutely what they're pointing at. It makes perfect sense. It's a perfect name for that sleazy, sleazy character who I was genuinely thrilled when he got disintegrated. Made me very happy. <laughs> I would like to know more about him. Really? Uh, I felt like we got everything we needed. He just seems like a, a like an even sleazier, like funky Flashman without as much panache. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've, we've put him into the zeitgeist here, so he'll be back within the year. You watch. Uh, so uh, I, I do want to mention quick, briefly, there was a who's who entry for the conglomerate uh, in issue number six of the Loose Leaf, which came out in late November. So again, kind of suggests that maybe Just League Quarterly came out in November, not August. I don't know. But it gives us some unrevealed information on Vapor and Echo. Now, I'll go ahead and include these on the image gallery, folks, because the conglomerate's really not going to get a lot of focus anywhere else. So might as well. Uh, and what was that uh, unrevealed information? Well, you get the real names for one thing, Vapor is Carrie Donahue, while Echo is Terry Eckhart. That was revealed in JLA, JLQ number eight, except the by issue 12 of Justice League Quarterly, which all the her real name is Mona Knockwood. Work that one out. Uh-oh. Maybe, maybe Echo got replaced on the team. <laughs> that seems like a very corporate thing to do. <laughs> it looks like the same the same Gallup, apart from the fact that she's pretty much nude, but someone hadn't been reading their previous issues or who's who. I don't know. Strange. Huh. Well, the Who's Who entry is nice. It, it's drawn by Chris Sprouse and Bruce Patterson, of course, the team that did this issue. And it pretty much just recaps the issue itself. So it's nice. But it's a, it's a nice Who's Who entry. I like it. And you get lots of jackets. <laughs> we'll have to buy you one. <laughs> So overall, I thought this issue was still pretty funny. I mean, it, it was it was a little more subdued than your typical Just League America issue where there's just jokes every couple panels. But still, I thought it was pretty funny. And overall, it was a great, great issue. Absolutely. I would, I would say this is one of the indispensable issues. Everyone who, you know, who enjoys JLI would probably enjoy this issue. It's To me, it's what I was expecting when they announced Justice League Europe, a more serious Justice League comic, but with room for gags. Yeah. And the moral issue uh, that was discussed 
discussed in the comic. And again, I don't know if we really went into that much, folks, but I mean, it all the moral issues around it are the corporations determining what the team does and also invading that small country, uh, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's in the corporate interest. So all of that became sort of the touchstones of the character's moral dilemmas. And I mean, it, I found that really, really interesting that they were in that position and they, they thankfully found a way to get out of it. But yeah. I do agree. I actually think the conglomerate should have got out of their relationship with the big business as soon as they did, because it was obvious pretty early on that it was just going to be about advertising. And at the point at which they're saying, in a very small country, they should have just walked. That was it. You're probably right. But a lot of them, you know, outside of Booster, none of them had the cachet to get a job, really. And so their job was in danger. I mean, I, I think all of us at some point or another have felt that threat of our job being in danger or, or at some point in your job. And not saying that we do something morally ambiguous, but you're just like, oh, I guess I have to do this project I don't want to do. And again, I'm not saying morally ambiguous, but you do something you, you dread because you're like, I got to keep my job. So I'm kind of envisioning that that's sort of what happened here. It's like, okay, I got to keep my job. I got to keep being able to feed myself. So I'll do this. And some of them, I think like Echo, if you read some of her lines, she's chasing the celebrity. She's excited by being in the paper and the pictures and all that. So I think that, you know, that's part of it. That's true. She, she does go on to become a rock star. But if actually, if they had known about how Fire and Ice got onto the league in the first place, they just turned up and said, you know, we need jobs. <laughs> That's true. That was sort of an odd uh, application process, wasn't it? <laughs> All right, folks. Well, that is Justice League Quarterly number one. It's a fantastic comic. Martin and I clearly loved it. We're going to come back to it in just a second. But for now, we are going to do something we haven't done in a little while that I like to call... Character Spotlight. This is where Martin is going to be asked to share some thoughts on a character from this issue. Not necessarily an origin recap. I mean, you can in this case if you want. But where the character was in the DC Universe before getting involved with the JLI. What kind of impact the JLI had on their lives and their careers afterwards. So, Martin, why don't you tell us a little bit about The Power of Praxis. Former police detective Jason Traxxas first appeared in a six-part story in Doug Mencher's Spectrum, drawn by the late Tom Ardis. The story was called Ghost in the Machine. And it featured an encounter with serial killer Richard Redditch transferred the monster's electricity powers over to Jason Traxxas. But whereas Redditch used his abilities to spread fear and to kill people, Traxxas was more about the light. The next time he appeared was with the conglomerate, and that's when we saw him use his powers for the first time. Although Giffen and Dimitris treated him as a powerful telepath, meaning they didn't understand him or they didn't care. My guess would be the latter, given that joke about what exactly could he do in the JLA conglomerate meeting. He says, it's not my power, it's my being. My mind is myself and myself is my mind, i.e. meaningless. Online sources claim he's six foot seven and he weighs 168 pounds. So if that's true, and I think it's only who, who entry was with the conglomerate, so no individual sats, he's pretty darn skinny under that big coat. Mm -hmm. And as a word, practice means to exercise or practice of an art, science or skill, customary practice and conduct. I still think it's terrible. I'd love to know what other people think. <laughs> anyway, the conglomerate next showed up in GLA 58 and GLE 34 helping the leagues against Despero and Lobo. But Praxis basically stood around doing the old Saturn Girl temple stroke and nothing else. The next time the conglomerate appeared in JLQ8, Praxis, along with most of the other members, were gone thanks to some manoeuvres by Max. He next showed up in a very creepy, dark backup solo serial in JLQ, which led to a full-length conclusion starring the Justice League. He was again training a serial killer, 
This time a mystic who was working for a spirit familiar to the League gasped one of the Demons Three. That's where we got a pretty decent summation of what you could do. Well, that week anyway. <laughs> he said, I can mentally control the electricity and things, which really means I can control anything since all magic contains electrons. According to various online sources, that translates into pretty much every mental power you've ever heard of, from psychic blasts to mental sedation. I don't recall seeing them all in comics, but at least the electricity bit comic explains why he doesn't show up in photos like on the cover or in this pamphlet that we see an issue. The damnation agenda, which was the name of the serial, was just terrific and it showed that Praxis and his new partner, Dina Walker, at least deserved a mini-series by the creative team here, writer Michael John Friedman, penciler Mike Matthew and our inker Dan Davis. And that is the last we've heard of practices, so far as I know, in comics anyway. Yeah, because then the crazy thing is, in 2019, so just a couple years ago, Praxis made an appearance in the Harlequin animated series, which was over on DC Universe at the time. Now it's over on HBO Max. So if you haven't seen it, folks, uh, the Harlequin series, some people like it, some people don't. I happen to think it's freaking hilarious. In season one, episode seven, Praxis makes an appearance. It's a pretty important one, too. What happens is that his whole family, this is before he has his powers, his whole family is having a family reunion. They stumble upon Harlequin and, and, and this heist that's going on. And one of the characters, the Queen of Fables, in order to cover their tracks, she brutally murders the entire family. Uh, Jason's the only one who survives. Uh, Harlequin has something to do with letting him survive. It's a little complicated in the plot, whatever. But he's very distraught because his family was murdered. So he ends up gaining all these powers uh, because he, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think he bumps into an electric fence or something. I don't remember. Anyway, he gains all these powers and he comes to attack uh, Harlequin and her team because of it and the Queen of Fables and all that but in the end uh, Queen of Fables ends up killing him but he's there for quite a while in the episode and he's an important character and I'm like oh my god it's Praxis this is crazy what a deep dive here uh, I was voiced, voiced by Phil Lamar so fantastic pedigree there so that was for me enjoying the Harlequin series that was a lot of fun that's incredible to dig him up does he still have the ponytail he did he did <laughs> I can't remember if he had the sunglasses or not I think he did I don't remember exactly uh it was it was it was pure joy for me seeing him in there <laughs> practice makes perfect oh my god see that's why it's a perfect name martin so i love that backup series you referenced as well and i just thought he was such a cool character and i can't believe that nothing happened to him after that i mean he is a bit 90s he is a bit i don't know neo in uh, matrix kind of over the top slick back hair sunglasses jacket kind of thing but I just really thought there was a character that had opportunity and could have been used in some, you know, some team somewhere down the line. So it made me sad that he never did. And again, like I said, I totally stole the idea for a role-playing game. Uh, in fact, you know what? I tell you, what, I'll, there's an image uh, of the character I designed for the role-playing game that uh, our, our game master actually hired a professional comic artist to draw all our characters. So I will share uh, the image of my character called Pyramid, who I totally stole off of Praxis. I'll share that on the image gallery as well. So uh, what a lot of fun. Thank you so much for covering that, Martin. I, I really enjoy this character. It was fun to hear about him again. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, folks. So we've talked about the issue. We've talked about Praxis. It is now time for the most important thing. It is time for the... Plahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Martin will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Martin, you got 72 pages to choose from. What did you pick for your Bwahaha Award? Well, 
I would ask you to go to page 15 and we're in a scene in which B, Fire, tells Ted not to get so upset about all the great publicity that the conglomerate is generating. And she says, Beetle, I'm mature enough not to let something like this get. And she's interrupted by the TV announcing a gypsy has endorsed a new line of clothing and yells, what does that cow know about clothing? (laughs) You know, this is starting to happen more often than I thought. Martin, I picked the exact same moment. I was going to say this doesn't happen very often on the show, but that is absolutely the butt-gusting, hilarious moment of Fire just being so petty. And it is hilarious. It cracked me up. Now, the runner-up for me was Elrond continuing to call Maxwell Lord, Lord Maxwell, which was pretty funny. It was a good ongoing gag. But that Fire moment genuinely made me bust out loud. So, yeah, I'm right there with you, buddy. I'm glad we agree, Lord Shackness. It's a first. Don't expect it to ever happen again, Martin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations to Fire. You have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Now, Martin, I need to ask a favor. Would, would you mind hanging around here for just a little bit and keeping an eye on the conglomerate? Because I'm nervous they might try and overthrow the Fire and Water Podcast Network, like a, some small third world nation. Or at the very least, Claire Montgomery might try and get the network to sponsor her team. Either way, I need someone to keep an eye on them. Would you mind? That's no problem at all. I want to persuade Gypsy to bring back that fantastic eye makeup that she used to wear and see if Reverb can do any of Paco's old hippity hop street dance moves. <laughs> Justice League Detroit represent. Now, uh, don't worry, Martin. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while Martin's taking care of this for us, folks, I'm going to go to a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, I'm going to read your listener feedback. Stellar Studios presents an Into the Weird and a World on Fire production. Starring in alphabetical order. Brainwave Jr. Fury. Jade. Northwind. Nuclon. Obsidian. The Silver Scarab. The Star Spangled Kid. These are the members of Infinity Inc., the protégés and children of the legendary Justice Society. Created by Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway, and Mike Macklin, their 1980s adventures are chronicled at last by Herman Lowe and Billy Dee. Two podcasters with way too much time on their hands, but dedicated to analyzing, glorifying, and sometimes vilifying the stories from the team's first series. So hop in your Star Rocket Racer, switch on the radio, and let's rediscover the Earth 2 we'd all like to go back to. Star Rocket Radio, an Infinity Inc. podcast. Soaring through the Pottersphere since September 2021. Booster? Hey, bro. Gah! Bats! Booster! Together! Wow, well, this is great. This is just awesome. You never said you and Booster were friends. <laughs> it never came up. A consummate professional like you, friends with a dilettante like Booster? You're both my friends, okay? You're more of a work friend, and Booster is more of a fun friend. What's more fun than fighting crime? Ooh, he's got you there. Hi, this is FKA Jason's son again. I just wanted to take another minute of your time to tell you about his podcast, Silver and Gold. He and his buddy Roy Charlemagne Clary celebrate the DC Comics characters Booster Gold and Captain Atom, issue by issue, and blah, 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 blah. 
Listen, the real reason you want to listen to the Silver and Gold is their Throwback Thursday episodes, because I'm the star of those shows. Dad and I review the Silver Age Captain Adam stories published by Charlton Comics in the 1960s. You can find the Silver and Gold podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow Dad's Splitting Adam's blog at CaptainAdamBlog.com. We all know the real reason you'll be tuning in is to hear me criticize, uh, I mean, celebrate the Silver Age Captain Adam in our Throwback Thursday episodes. I can't believe Dad roped me into this. Searching for silver and gold If you're alone When you grow old You'll never find comfort in silver and gold Justice Log All right, folks, now get out on the social media. We want to hear from you. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. Now, remember, if you're posting your comments and you're outside of the United States, let me know, and we'll assign you the appropriate embassy. This is also good to know because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, over on iTunes, we have a new review from Edwin, who goes by ESB Jr., and he writes, Fun look back at JLI and JLE Comics. You can hear the love of the JLI Bwahaha years from Shag and his guest co-hosts in every episode. It's great to relive these stories of superheroes having fun compared to today's two dark superheroes. The podcast always gives me a new perspective on a book that I've forgotten many of the details of since I've been following the Justice League since the early 1970s. It's been great rereading these stories and listening to this great podcast. I'm looking forward to the episodes still to come. Thanks, Shag and friends. Aw, well, thank you so much, Edwin. That's incredibly kind of you to say. Now, folks, if you haven't left us an iTunes review, I do ask, please take a second to go do that. It's just one way you can show your appreciation of the show. And if you choose not to leave an iTunes review, well, then I might just send the conglomerate over to your house to liberate your iTunes account like they liberated that third world country. All right, now getting into it, we're about to talk about the feedback from Justice League America number 42, which was the recruitment issue. But along those same lines, I reached out to our patrons on Patreon, and I asked them, who would you have recruited for the JLI back in 1990? So I'm going to real quick run through everyone's suggestions. There's a whole bunch of them. There's a lot more commentary out there. If you're a patron, definitely go check it out. If you're not a patron, please consider. Uh, It would be appreciated. It does help support the network. So uh, Mark Baker Wright said he would put in Firestorm. Mike Dinah said Captain Marvel or Shazam, uh, The Demon, Shay the Changing Man, or Matter Eater Lad. Tom Panarese suggested Aqualad. Federico Hernandez said Jason Praxis. All right, on point for this episode. Thank you. Ryan Daly said Black Vulcan, El Dorado, Apache Chief, or Samurai. Well, let's face it, folks, it's Ryan, so we never know if he's being serious or not. Then Michelle Fife suggested The Creeper, or maybe Geoforce or Halo. Sean Ross was also interested in a former outsider. He said probably Halo. 
Chris Lewis said Ultra the Multi-Alien. Chris Wetter suggested Firehawk. Adam Ackerman suggested Nubia. Doug Van Diver suggested Davoud Nasur, which was the young boy from the Superman comics who, at the time, uh, had been assigned the superhero name of Sinbad. Nicholas Prom suggested Brother Power of the Geek, Ultra the Multi-Alien. Captain Comet and Prince Raman. Tim Price suggested Firehawk, Blue Devil, or any of the Outsiders, or even Hawkman from the Hawkworld comic. Herman Lowe suggested Tigor from the Omega Men. Patrick McMullen said Captain Carrot or any of the Zoo crew. Jason Keane suggested Red Tornado, Aqualad, or the Creeper. Kichi Baker said all of the remaining members of the JSA. Brett Young suggested Adam Cray, Joe Potato, or all of the Wanderers. And then Adam Luke wrapped it up with a hilarious callback to Justice League Annual Number 1 saying, Batman keeps driving. <laughs> that was awesome. So again, folks, if you're a patron, uh, head out there. You can see that post and you can still add comments. As always, thanks to all of our patrons for your support of the network. Now, we're going to get into your comments from our website, email, social media. Now, I'm just going to be pulling bits and pieces because there's a tremendous amount of feedback from these couple of issues. So, we'll be covering the most recent episode featuring Justice League America number 42 with Doug Zuisha and Justice League Europe number 18 with Terry O'Malley. We heard from Jeremy Patrick from our Australian embassy. Jeremy says, Justice League America number 42 is one of my favorites. My only disappointment was that instead of adding some of the new members I was reading at the time, like El Diablo, or that someone was justifiably demanding, like Blue Devil, the issue ends with a couple of boring new gods who have never done much for me. Justice League Europe number 18 was great. It sure took a surprising turn. Then he says, my wife and kids kind of make fun of me because I have a terrible memory. But the joke's on them, because I can enjoy these comics like they're brand new, even though I've probably read them like 10 times in the past 30 years. (laughs) You know, Jeremy, that's kind of a cool superpower. The Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy reached out to let us know that uh, Booster Gold just celebrated his 35th anniversary. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And uh, he had even shared a, an article from Games Radar over there about Booster's 35th anniversary. Kevin Wetter said, I've always wanted to know why Starman looks so haggard on that cover. Uh, you're not wrong. Uh, Starman does look really, really rough around the edges on that cover. In fact, Netministrator from the DC Multiverse, Earth 1, Earth 2 blog says, Cool, I never knew that Wonder Man crossed over to the DCU and joined the Justice League. Of course, he's uh, referring to Will Payton looking a lot like Simon Williams during that era. In fact, Doug Zuisha, the guest from the last episode, says, Blah ha ha, I've never seen Will Payton in that way, and now I will never be able to unsee it. <laughs> they heard from Gus Casals from the Argentina Embassy. He does shows such as the Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus says, I loved how the first half of the show turned into a review of those wonderful comics of the time. Consider me a Hawk and Dove fan, Starman fan, and Mike Parabek, and so many other things you touched upon. That's great. And then Gus says, my only misgiving as a native Spanish speaker and a Latin American is that it is assumed that B, meaning fire, is a Spanish speaker. She's Brazilian, so her native tongue is Portuguese, not Spanish. Then he goes on to say, of course, she used to be a top-notch spy in her country back in the day, so there's a good chance she's fluent in Spanish. But this issue assumes she's a native, throwing Spanish-language literature references and so on. Is it a nitpick? Of course. But hey, international community of fans, right? You have a couple of high-profile Brazilian commenters who want to hear what they think. Uh, then his ears perked up. Everton Vieira do Carmo from our Brazil embassy wrote in to say, just a comment. Portuguese and Spanish are not the same language. It's not that easy to understand one if you speak the other one, other than it's a really funny joke. Then Evertom does ask why we didn't have a Meanwhile episode about Scott, uh, Mr. Miracle's adventures in space. He says those are really good. You know, you're right. Those were really, really fun. And maybe we'll come back and do a Meanwhile episode on those at some point. Right now, though, I'm trying to power through and get through as many of these JLI issues as I can. 
Then we heard from Damian Droward Whiter from our England MC. He does a podcast with his husband called Should I Love This Comic? Damian says he wants to join the Justice Log General Glory Fan Club. I really should have been a charter member as I've been a fan since JLA number 46. I recently reread the entire Glory Bound storyline and I enjoyed it as much today as I did back in the 90s. I'm really looking forward to you getting to it. That's awesome, Damien. I'm so glad to hear there are more General Glory fans out there. Then Damien goes on to say, Justice League America number 42 has long been one of my favorites. In fact, I love all the membership drive issues. There's something great about seeing the JLI interacting with the greater DC universe. Yeah, there is something really special about that. You're absolutely right. Then he says about Just League Europe, he goes, I've always thought that the extremist vector was the weakest storyline in the Giffen run, and it seems like Terry agrees with me. There's no doubt that this is more than just a change of scripter. I'm aware, due to my well-read copy of The Legion Companion, that this is the era where Keith Giffen left the five-year-later Legion of Superheroes. He apparently felt stuck in the middle of a political battle with a Superman office, which led to the reboot in the Hourglass issue. He talks about being so pissed off that he considered leaving comics entirely. Wow. Yeah, it is quite possible that that frustration... And perhaps distraction resulted in some of the lackluster Just League Europe issues. Good speculation, Damien. Then we're from Rob McCarthy from the Hell on Wheels comic strip. He says, I want a Russian hero called Red Sun. It'll confuse people that he's not Japanese. <laughs> I like it. Then we heard from Mike Dinas from the Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike says, well done, everyone. This was an awesome episode with great guests. Oh, well, thanks, Mike. We appreciate that. Then he goes on to say, I was always disappointed when the interior art was not Kevin McGuire or Adam Hughes. And seeing this great cover really set me up for a great issue. I really don't have anything against Mike McCone, but after seeing Adam Hughes set up the hilarity inside, McCone was a bit of a letdown. I mean, it's no Superman Bicentennial Treasure Edition bait and switch, but that's what it felt like as a kid. After saying all that, this is a hilarious and enjoyable issue, and I can enjoy and appreciate Mike McCone's artwork now. Thanks for sharing, Mike, and love the treasury joke. The one from Jeff Aro says, The Despero follow-up Doug reference happens in breakdowns, so you will get to it. It establishes a new status quo that goes into Justice League Task Force. Thanks, Jeff. They want her from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says, I'm glad to see that Mr. Miracle's back. It's a good thing that he's already got a grave marker, since I think his wife is going to want to kill him after what he put her through. <laughs> That's a good point. Then Liz goes on to say uh, about Justice League Europe, specifically the world of Angor. Uh, Liz says, The president just giving up without even thinking of trying to find someone effective is kind of not great. Then Liz says, The amusement park robots are kind of funny. Though if these androids are so powerful, no one thought to reprogram them to fight the bad guys? That's a great observation. With so many of those robots, yeah, they could have took on the extremists. Good idea, Liz. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast, the House of Franklinstein, and so much more. Chris says, Always a pleasure to hear from Doug. I still enjoy looking through his excellent Hawkman companion from Tomorrow's. Then Chris says, Who oh boy, that design for Orion and that hair. I think he and Light Ray are more likely to show up at a recruitment drive at Headbangers Ball. <laughs> and then Chris says, Can we start a drinking game based on Shag's quote, I never noticed that fill in the blank on the cover until you pointed out. I think we'll need new livers by the time we get to the end of breakdowns. Get your eyes checked, man. <sighs> Thank you so much, Chris. Yes, there are a few things on the covers I didn't notice, uh, and I'm noticing now as I cover them in the issues. Hey, at least I'm fessing up to it. Then Siskoid agrees with him. Uh, Siskoid says this does seem to happen a lot with Shag. Uh, well, you know what, Siskoid and Chris, uh, I gotta say that you guys didn't notice Joker's head on the cover of the Justice League Quarterly cover, but I did. So, there. <laughs> and of course, by the way, Siskoid is from our Canadian embassy. He's also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and he does shows like Zero Hour Strikes, and he's currently doing a miniseries on who's hot and who's not going through the Who's Who comics. 
They all heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy. They have a blog called Symbol Pending, all dedicated to Power Girl. They write, The whole Justice League Europe comic just felt like padding, as many have pointed out. It is not particularly exciting filler at that. Though I think I'm more in the meh category than objectively hating the comic. One thing I find curious is that Kara shows the most concern about Silver Sorcerer on the float, which I find a little odd as I don't recall them spending much time around each other. Hmm. That's an interesting observation. Yeah, um, Power Girl and Silver Surfers probably haven't spent much time together at all. So, it, you know, I guess maybe it's just, well, I was going to say Kara's natural empathy, but at this point in her career, they're not really showing her to be that nice. Hmm, I don't know. We'll have to see how that develops. Then Symbol Pending says, as for Power Girl's costume, I'm sort of on the fence. In some panels, like the splash page, it looks fine. It vaguely like our first high collar, but with more room. But mostly the issue has it hiding the bottom of her head, and then it just looks awful. I'm wondering if it's just one of those costumes that only certain artists can draw well. I don't know, it could be. Uh, although I do think that Bart Sears is one of the ones who draws it really well. Then we heard from Martin Gray. I have no idea who this guy is, but apparently he's from our Scottish embassy and he does a blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl. Martin says, thanks for another fantastic episode with two excellent guests as ever. Well, except when you only have one guest. I believe that happens sometimes. Ah, Martin's setting it up for himself there, isn't he? Then Martin says, yes, Scott Snyder did bring back Will Payton recently, but in a weird way. I consider that his story ended with Jack Knight's book. Anyway, he's now and truly back in limbo. Well, thanks for the info on Will Payton. I was not about to read those Just League issues, so I appreciate the update. And then Martin says, as for Justice League Europe, gosh, Terry really hates that cover. I think it's great, especially the pink. Well, there we go, folks. There's a different opinion. I'm glad you liked it, Martin. They heard from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary, also part of the Legion of Super Bloggers. Dr. Ange says, am I the only one that will pick up the Hawk and Dove, our awesome banner, and wave it proudly? Yes, Dr. Ange, you are the only one. <laughs> then Ange says, why did Hawk and Dove turn down the Justice League? Because they're too good for the league. Oh, burn. Thank you, Dr. Ange. They were from Matt Ev from our Scottish Embassy. He also has the Ultron Is My Elvis blog. Matt says, well, that was fantastic. Much hilarity. Oh, well, thank you, Matt. He says, as to the mystery of the unidentified characters from last month still persists, I wonder if the braces guy, meaning the guy in the suspenders, I wonder if the braces guy might be Jack Ryder with the semi-green hair in allusion to his creepy alter ego. Then Tim Price chimes in responding. Uh, Tim, of course, is with the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl and Huntress podcast. Wait a minute. Braces? That was the big not-followed-up-on point from the first Justice of Europe story. An old Nazi appears on our doorstep, says braces, and dies. Was he referring to this braces guy? <laughs> I love that, Tim. I love it. Braces. Never forget. Uh, then Tim goes on to say, Just like America number 42, Hawk and Dove's handling in this book amuses me to no end, both on the cover and on the inside, for a very specific reason that I don't believe is mentioned on the show. Hawk and Dove change back to their human forms when the danger has passed, so they're both very protective about their secret identities. So on the cover, they're trying to get out of Max's office quickly. Then, in the comic, rushing away rudely off-panel from Ice and Huntress makes perfect sense, and the befuddled leaguers are funnier to watch since they don't know the full story. Wow, Tim, that's fascinating. Okay, so I did not read Hawk and Dove. I've read the occasional issue or two. I never picked up on the fact that they just like automatically change back to their human form when the danger's over. So that is very interesting. And it also just points out one more reason why I didn't read Hawk and Dove. Uh, then Tim goes on to say about Power Girl, Sleeveless is a much better look for Kara's costume. It mystifies me why no one in the DC offices lobbied to make it the real look. Then uh, further on about Just Like Europe, he says, on a different point, about blowing up the theme park. I just discussed this on the Batgirl Cassandra Kane podcast, plug, uh, where they showed all of the walls in a villain's hideout were lined with C4 bricks in order to blow it up. Is this how villains actually build their hideouts so they can be destroyed? Do they feel safer knowing they're surrounded on all sides by explosives? And shouldn't fights with heroes accidentally set those explosives off sometimes? Ouch, now my head hurts. 
I, you know, Tim, that's a great observation. All the times people have the self-destruct button. Yeah, that does mean their their headquarters, that location is packed to the gills with explosives. That's pretty terrifying. The owner from Patrick McMullen, this is another great episode. Thanks. I won't lie, I totally laughed at the, quote, it's time to squeeze the Starman line. <laughs> Look at Guy giving Beetle competition for the funniest JLI member. Then we heard from Ward Hill Terry, of course the guest from the last episode. Terry says, I forgot one thing about last issue that I wanted to discuss with Shag. The Earth stats Walt Disney character shown in the flashback look like Mitch Miller. Mitch Miller was not a theme park guy. He was a producer at Capitol Records in the 1950s and had a phenomenal and explicable success with, quote, sing-along-with-Mitch record albums. Wow, Ward, that's fascinating. How interesting. I uh, obviously had no idea about that, but thank you for sharing. Then we're from Ciscoid again. He says, I get it, Terry. Shag is the guy who loves all the stuff you do, but has every opposite opinion about that stuff. You know, Ciscoid, that's kind of fair. Terry and I do love a lot of the same stuff, but yes, our opinions seem to always be on the opposite side of the fence. Then heard from Jason Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels, Monster Problems and Super Problems. Jason writes, Membership drive issues are always fun, especially in this series. When I first read this, I didn't know who the new gods were, other than the fact that they're Scott Free's people, so I had no idea who Orion or Light Ray were. Maybe it's because I had no precedent at all, but I actually thought they looked cool, even with the white snake hair, and I seem to be the oddity that likes this Orion costume better than his classic look. Uh, Jason, yeah, yeah, you are the odd man out. You may be the only person on Earth that likes this version of Orion's costume better than his original one. Then Jason addresses the issue about fire and speaking Portuguese. I hear people's complaints about B not being a Spanish speaker, but imagine that while Portuguese may be her first language, all the countries around Brazil speak Spanish. And in her lifetime, uh, in her career as a secret agent, she may have had reason to learn Spanish to travel to those countries. Given that she obviously can speak English, we could assume she could speak several languages. And he says Marvel made the same mistake with Sunspot several times. He too's from Brazil, but is shown speaking Spanish instead of Portuguese. And a little bit of research informs me that 460,000 Brazilians speak Spanish. Spanish. That's nearly half a million. So it's not out of the question that Fire and Sunspot speak Spanish. Hmm. You know, that's really interesting. And, you know, um, thanks for the extra research. Then Jason goes on to say, this issue has one of my favorite gags. El Diablo enters the restaurant and Beetle says, how did you know we were here? You must be some kind of super detective like Batman. And Diablo responds, actually, I noticed a giant mechanical bug ship parked outside. Great stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's a great bit, Jason. And there's so many funny lines in that issue. All right, folks, now this is the point where we are going to thank everyone who shared the show on their social media timeline, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. It is a very long list of names, especially this time. However, these folks show their support and promoted the show, so it's important to me that we recognize each of these individuals. And, folks, our community continues to grow. This time we've got right around 100 names. This is crazy. So here's everyone who helped promote the last episode by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. It's very easy to get out of this list, folks. Again, share on Facebook, retweet on Twitter. So our thanks to Al Girding, Andre TFG, Between the Pages blog, Billy Delicious, Boosterific.com, Bryce Swan, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Dr. Pop Culture Bowling Green State University, Coach Phil Jacks, Clinton Robison and his accounts for Coffee and Comics, Days of High Adventure podcast, and Fan Film Fridays podcast, Comic Fan 44, Creed Stonegate Retromaniac, Critical Blast, Cyber Jaeger, Damian Drowett Whiter, Daniel Ulrich, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, DC in the 80s, Don Ron 3870, Doug Zoisha, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz Levine, Drasco Roganovic, Ed Moore, Edwin Billiot, Emo Scott Pilgrim, Federico Hernandez, Full Metal Moose, Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, Hugo Silva, Into the Weird, Jake Muir, James Young, Jason Pope, Jason R. Lady, Jeremy Daw, Jesse W. Campbell, 
JG Astro Antiquity, John Wilson, Justin Steiner, Keith G. Baker, Liz Ann Oswald, Long Box of Darkness, Mariano Chulakian, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Matt Ev and his Ultron is My Elvis account, Matthew Cody, Max Reads Comics and his Weird Warriors podcast, Max Romero, Mazinger1978, Michael J. Scully, Michael Kramer, Michael Thomas, Mick Jameson, Mike Dynas, Ministry of Otaku, Mr. E, Nuno Duarte, Outlaw Rob, 58 Streaming Network, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Pragmatic Gollum, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast, Pushkin Chakraborty, Rob Kelly and his accounts for Digest Cast, Superman Movie Minute, Treasury Comics, Mountain Comics, and For All Mankind, a Superman Podcast. Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast. Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast. Siskoid. Slangword Scott. Super Lad Kid. Superman Radio Revisited Podcast. And I apologize, I missed them last time, so I'm so sorry, Superman Radio Revisited. Symbol Pending. The Voice of Paul. Tim Price in the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Tony Wolf, Ward Hill Terry. Will Hughes. Willie Arbrough. Yul R. Espinoza. And Zeb Oswald. Oh, wow. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and our community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of Doug Zawisha or Terry O'Malley. Eh, you know what? Let's face it. It's probably Terry's fault. Now, let me know, folks, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming, everyone. Our website is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there in the show post. That's where most of the activity going on. You can also find us on Facebook as JLI Podcast or Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast. On Twitter we are JLI Podcast. On our email is JLIPodcast at gmail.com My thanks again to Doug Zoisha and Terry O'Malley for appearing on the most recent episode of the show and thanks so much to you folks at home for an awesome collection of feedback. You guys totally rock. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break and when we come back we'll rejoin Martin Gray in the New York Embassy. Intolerable. Just intolerable. For three years, those casters of pods have thwarted my plans. I, Mephisto, simply don't know why I bother. Maybe some streaming will cheer me up. Let's see. Oh, my cue is a Brobdenagian shambles. These cartoons don't belong together. First, giant transforming robots, then colorful ponies. Bah, it's enough to drive one mad. I... Wait, that's it. That's how I'll conquer those casters. First, I'll drive them mad with the most insane, diabolical, cockeyed crossover comic ever. Finally, they will be mine. <laughs> Mephisto vs. the Podcasters 4 Covering Transformers, My Little Pony, Friendship in Disguise. Yes, really. Featuring the Married with Comics Rod Pod podcast. Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. And the Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Coming Halloween 2021. Autobots.
On your mark, get set, go for the Fire & Water Network Superman Virtual Run. Coming this October, join comic book fans and fellow Fire & Water Network listeners in a 5K run. Obviously, we can't all run together in the same place, but you can do this anywhere you want. You can run or even walk around your hometown, around the block, nature trails, or even a treadmill. You can make this race your own. We're doing this in conjunction with the official DC Comics Superman Virtual Run. This official virtual run comes with some cool Superman swag and is helping raise money for charity. For our Fire & Water Network run, we're recommending running a 5K. However, anyone can participate by running or even just walking as little as one mile. Or you can do 5K or 10K. Your choice. For those participating, just pick any date in October to run. Many of us are targeting the week of October 18th through 24th, but any October date works. For more information and to register for the Fire & Water Network run, visit our Sign Up Genius page at fireandwaterpodcast.com slash run2021. That's R-U-N-2021. Once you're on the Sign Up Genius page, you'll need the access code to enter. The access code is simply the word JOY, all lowercase J-O-Y. Now, there's no cost to join this Fire & Water Network run. However, we strongly encourage you to also register for the official DC Comics Superman Virtual Run on their website. It's a fun program that comes with great Superman Run perks. Their fee is $40 per individual, but remember, they are helping raise money for charity. So join us for this fun, healthy, and super heroic event in October. Remember, to participate, you can do as little as walking just one mile. For more details and to sign up, visit fireandwaterpodcast.com slash run2021 and use the access code JOY. On your mark, get set, go! Okay, folks, we're back from break, and I am here with Sir Martin of Grey. Martin, thank you so much for appearing on the episode. I really appreciate it. Now, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs? Well, they can find me at my blog, which is called Too Dangerous for a Girl. And I'm on Twitter, 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 at, at Mart Grey, M-A-R-T-G-R-A-Y. I'm around the four pages in pretty much every response page on every superhero podcast you can find, because I never shut up. <laughs> and we sincerely appreciate you never shutting up, sir. You're a lovely, lovely member of our family, and uh, we couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much, Martin. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight to revisit the conglomerate. It was. It really was. And now I know why six years ago you asked to cover this issue. So uh, it was an absolute joy, and I'm so glad we did it. So folks, that is going to do it. Come back next episode when we cover Justice League America number 43 and Justice League Europe number 19. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who are they going to be? Really? Seriously? After all these years, you're going to ask that question? People, you're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Martin. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. What a mix. Make something of it? weather machine over my dead body all right how you want to go just tell me if you want casket open or close what the hell
hell kind of fairy tale is he from? Well, from the looks of him, one of those Danish ones that's super racist. He's not with me. Uh, anyone have another magical story book? Yeah, there be Dalton or Walden books in this book? Who the hell are you? I am Jason Praxis! Last surviving member of the 25th Annual Praxis Family Reunion and Jamboree. Who? You murdered all of my family! Oh, oh shit. shit. Yeah, I did that. <laughs>